Now it's time for the Disney View podcast. Please move across your car to make room for everyone. Our podcast will begin momentarily. Join Dave as he makes his Grand Circle tour around the Walt Disney World Resort. Dave is a dreamer and an engineer who enjoys the magic and wonder of it all, but understands Disney's place in history and respects the legacy that's been left. Come along and hear Dave's thoughts about Walt Disney World and see it through Dave's eyes. Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, mantenganse alejado del David. And now, here's your host. From the land of the rising sun, Nippon no minasama, yokoso, okoshikudasaimashita. Hey everyone, it's Dave. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast, and also to the ducks who are watching me record this podcast. I'm over in the Japan Pavilion over in Epcot, and I'm going to take you around and show you around, well, at least auditorily show you around the、uh, Japan Pavilion, talk about some of the things that you can see and do there, and let you enjoy yourself. So come with me as we take a look around, and you can hear the taiko drums in the background as we're getting closer. We're going to break this up, and I'll give you a, an overview and talk about the buildings, the designs, and the architecture, and then move on to talk about the grounds, the outdoor gardens, and displays. Then I'm going to head inside and talk about all the inside displays and, of course, the shopping that's available. Afterward, I'll tell you all about the entertainment you'll find, characters and kids' stuff, and then I'll t- talk about the dining options and drinking around the world, since some people like to indulge in an adult beverage now and then. And at the end, I'll give you some details about either what was planned for the attraction but never built or is planned for the future. So let's start with the overview. The Japan Pavilion was one of the original nine World Showcase pavilions. And had been in the planning stages since the late 1970s. Over the years, many attractions have been proposed for the pavilion, and one show building was built but left unused. But more on that a little bit later. In designing Epcot's Japan Pavilion, Walt Disney Imagineers incorporated Japanese design principles of balance, harmony, simplicity, formality, and delicacy to evoke a sense of serenity, but adding in characteristic features of traditional Japanese settings. The design flows aesthetically. A central entry point spanning from the Tori Gate on the lagoon to the palace walls with an open courtyard, a majestic pagoda on one side, and another large building, the ceremonial house, on the other. One interesting thing is that the Japan Pavilion features more recreations of actual buildings or landmarks than perhaps any other World Showcase Pavilion. So you'll hear me talk about reference points and actual places as I discuss things. The most recognizable feature of the pavilion, and the one that can be seen around the lagoon, is the red Tori Gate that's out on the lagoon. The one that you see in Epcot is based on the one that's at the entrance to the Itsukushima Shrine on the inland sea in what's popularly known as Mayajima. While this one exists in an island off the coast of Japan, it's certainly not the only Tori that you will find around Japan. Tori Gates can be found all over the place. Now, the Mayajima Shrine has been destroyed several times. In history, but the first shrine buildings were probably erected in the 6th century. The present shrine dates from the mid 16th century and is believed to follow an earlier design from about the 12th century, just to give you a sense of history and perspective. Now, a tori is a traditional Japanese gate most commonly found at the entrance of or within a Shinto shrine, where it symbolically marks the transition from profane to the sacred. The presence of the tori at the entrance is usually the simplest way to identify a Shinto shrine. And a small Tori icon represents them on a Japanese roadmap. Now, I should note that most Japanese do not typically identify themselves with one practice or a single religion. 
but rather incorporate and apply aspects of various faiths into their individual beliefs in a fashion known as Shinbutsu. For many, this includes some Shintoism and Buddhism. That's why at the Japan Pavilion, you'll see representations of both Shinto shrines and Buddhist temples. The architectural styles can be found throughout Japan, and sometimes near each other. So, this is a representative vision of the country on the whole. Now, there's one specific difference between this gate and the original. The one at Epcot has a plaque with a calligraphy inscription that reads, Japan. Other than that, there's something cool about this Tori, and it's about the attention to detail. It's been weathered to appear as though it's been exposed to the sun, water, and wind for centuries. And not only that, take a closer look when you're near it at the base near the waterline. Imagineers added barnacles and crustaceans to give it an even more weathered look. You might expect to find barnacles if, as if this were in the ocean. So this is a remarkable thing to do to give it the appearance of aging, and it gives it a sense of authenticity, and it's that attention to detail that really makes it special. The Tory gates are traditionally made of stone or wood, with the latter being painted vermilion. The origins of the Tory gate are unknown, but there are several different theories on the subject. One suggests that they were originally built as perches for the roosters to welcome the sun goddess Amaterasu. As you stand at the gate and look toward the pavilion, you'll notice several distinct structures and some hills with gardens and a castle in the distance. A unique feature of Japan is the wide open courtyard. It's one of the few countries in the Epcot where you won't feel hemmed while enjoying the sights. You may also notice that the Japanese color palettes are somewhat subdued and subtle. The gardens and grounds in Japan have a manicured, well-ordered appearance that kind of complements that. Now, the pagoda to your left is Goju no To. It's a five-story pagoda. Although pagodas are associated with several religions, they're most commonly linked with Buddhism. During the planning stages for the Japan Pavilion, the Imagineers were incorporating elements for a number of different pagodas. When their Japanese advisor saw the drawings, he explained that they had used many Chinese components in their designs and did not accurately represent the pagodas found in Japan. Compared to Chinese pagodas, Japanese structures use the muted colors, less ornamentation, and their roofs have simple lines. So they redesigned it, and the design of Epcot's pagoda was inspired by the 7th century Horiyuju Temple in Nara. It stands 85 feet tall. Now, the five tiers of the pagoda represent in ascending order the elements from which the Buddhist believes that all things in the universe are created. Earth, water, fire, wind, and sky. On the roof is a sorin, a finial. A sorin is divided into several sections, each having a symbolic meaning. The sorin here has nine rings, which act as wind chimes, and it's topped with a water flame. Now, of course, this being Florida, there's one non-traditional element that's been added to this pagoda, and that's a lightning rod that exists in the top. A little history for you. The pagoda was believed to have been started in Nepal, where it was used to house religious relics. As pagodas spread across Asia, their design was altered to fit the needs of the people and their beliefs. Looking toward the back of the pavilion, we see a castle or fortress up on the hill. This one is based on the 17th century Shirasagi-jo, a castle overlooking Himeji. The original fortress is one of the best preserved fortresses of early Japan. The structure is also known as Shirasaji-jo, which means white egret or white heron castle, due to its brilliant white color. It has these curved stone walls, white plaster structures, and blue roof tiles. Now, not unlike the castles of Europe, the castle provided some protection or safe haven when the town would come under attack. Japanese castles were constructed primarily of stone and wood, and almost always were built atop a mound or hill. This gave the structure an imposing presence and provided for better views of the surrounding land. 
Their sloping rock walls help strengthen the structure and protect it from earthquakes, which has always been a consideration in Japanese design. Castle walls were built around the building itself. In larger castles, like the one you see at Epcot, the White Heron has a secondary moat away from the main building. This moat would provide a physical barrier between the primary structure and outer buildings. These buildings would house lower-ranking samurai. Since this is a representation of the original, Imagineers use forced perspective to make it seem like you're approaching the castle as you walk straight back through the wide entryway. As you exit the courtyard in the back, you enter a massive wooden stone Nijo entry to the castle. Look around here while you're standing there. On either side, there are large statues of mounted samurai soldiers positioned around as though they are guarding the castle and ready to protect it. Passing through the Nijo, you cross a wide bridge spanning a moat. Its style dates back from the mid-1300s. This is the secondary moat that I mentioned previously. As you cross it, you enter the castle, well, at least in spirit. Castle walls stretch in either direction, further reinforcing the notion that you're entering the fortress. Above you, there's an archway, which has some calligraphy characters painted on it. Konnichiwa is what it says. Hello, or more to the point, it's a greeting essentially meaning welcome. In feudal times, great castles dominated the Japanese countryside. Inhabitants of the castle towns found great refuge in their walls. The great beauty and strength of the era is captured in this style as you approach the castle. Now, if you stand back at the Tory Gate and look to your right, you'll see another building. This is the imposing two-story Chishienden, inspired by the Gosho Ceremonial and Coronation Hall found in the Imperial Palace grounds of Kyoto. Kyoto, of course, was the original capital of Japan. The Shishienden was built in 794. It's said to be one of the first true styles of Japanese architecture. The first floor of the Shishienden contains a gift shop presented by the world-famous Mitsukoshi Department Store, but more on that later. On the second level, guests can dine at either the Tokyo Dining, an expansive sushi bar presented by three female chefs, or Teppanido, which showcases the food presentations and knife skills of Teppanyaki Dining. Leading up to the second floor is a large staircase that leads to the second floor, which is known as the Hall of Ceremonies. Next to the staircase is a booth manned by cast members, and here you can make reservations for Tokyo Dining or Teppanido, located on the second floor of the building. If you already have your reservations, you can check in at this podium or in the lobby upstairs. Now let's take a look at the grounds and the gardens. The Imagineers and horticulturalists did a terrific job of capturing the spirit of traditional Japanese gardens and meshing them with the buildings to give you an immersive experience that really makes you feel like you're in Japan, perhaps just outside of Tokyo. The area is filled with Japanese pools and gardens, but Japan is much further north than Florida, so it's impossible to recreate all manner of trees and shrubs, but they used as many as they could and found similar substitutes to stand in for Florida's tropical environment. Still, you'll find Japanese maples, bamboo, monkey puzzle trees, and other native plantings, which provide a tranquil garden setting. In Japan, gardening is a precise art. Every object in its placement in the garden has a special meaning. Here, activity, symbolism, and reverence for nature blend in with the intense maintenance to create a garden with a truly unique beauty. A typical Japanese garden contains a number of different elements in its design. These include water, rocks and sand, bridges, architecture, lanterns, fences, trees and flowers, and fish. All of these can be found in the Japan Pavilion Gardens. Reviewing each of these, Japanese consider water to be a life source and thus is abundant at the Japan Pavilion. Water also represents the sea, which is important to Japanese life. Rocks in Japan represent the enduring nature of Earth. 
Most of the larger stones found at the Japan Pavilion were imported from North Carolina and Georgia, since boulders in Florida are relatively scarce. Rock gardens, karasansui, are closely associated with Zen Buddhism. Unlike traditional gardens, rock gardens have no water features. Instead, gravel or sand represents the sea, ocean, rivers, or lakes, and sometimes even the sky. Raking the stones provides two benefits. First, the patterns are aesthetically pleasing and represent waves or ripples. However, achieving perfection is not easy, and raking allowed Zen priests to concentrate and meditate while performing this task. When viewing the rock garden at the Japan Pavilion, ask yourself, are the large rock islands in the water, or are they the tops of mountains protruding above the clouds? And you may notice that sometimes the gardener will make them straight lines, and sometimes they will make them curvy lines. Realistically, that's part of the mood of the gardener. If he's in a good mood, you'll see straight lines. If he's in a bad mood, the lines tend to be more wavy. Bridges symbolize transition, the passing from one segment of your life to another. In other words, we've made it this far, do we want to turn back, do we wish to continue on the same path or change direction? Traditional Japanese architecture has been characterized by wooden structures elevated slightly off the ground with tiled or thatched roofs. Inside sliding wooden doors were used in place of walls, allowing for customization of space depending on the need. Stone lanterns were introduced by tea masters to guide guests through their gardens to the tea ceremonies held in the evening. Near the rock garden is a, sm is a stone lantern. This lantern represents more than 3,000 lanterns found in the Kasuga Ta Taisha Shrine in Nara. These lanterns are illuminated three times each year, once during the Setsubun Montoro Festival in February, and twice during the Obon Montoro Festival in August. The deer on the side of the Japan Pavilion lantern represents the famous Nara Deer Park adjacent to the shrine. Fences are often used in Japanese gardens to compartmentalize. It's not uncommon for several types of landscaping to be displayed in one area. A fence can add a beauty and helps divide one section of the garden from another. Evergreen trees are symbols of eternal life and are plentiful in the Japan Pavilion. Azaleas, native to several continents, including Asia, can also be found here. In Japan, a number of cities celebrate the azalea with festivals and events. Koi are simply domesticated carp that are used to decorate ponds and water gardens. They were first bred by the Japanese in the 1820s for their distinctive color. They were virtually unknown to the outside world until 1914 when they were exhibited in an exhibition in Tokyo. Interest was immediate, and the hobby of keeping koi spread worldwide. If you're looking for a lovely place to get in touch with your Zen, then visit the koi pond located in the Japanese garden. It's a beautiful place to take a break from the action of the parks, relax, and enjoy the surroundings. You can find a shady spot and just look down at the koi and enjoy the rustling of the breeze. Now here are a couple of other details about the gardens. In front of the Shishien Den, you will find a foliage garden with lanterns, rocks, and other things to relax. You may also notice a stone statue on the corner near the World Showcase walkway. This statue was a gift from the government of Japan when the Magic Kingdom opened and was moved to Epcot's Japan Pavilion in 1981. To the right of the pagoda is a typical Japanese garden, a cultural aspect that dates back centuries. Originally transported to Japan from China, the Japanese garden has evolved over time and taken a distinctive look of its own. While Buddhist gardens were designed for meditation and contemplation, gardens of the nobility were intended for recreation and aesthetic pleasure. As gardens grow and mature, they are constantly sculpted and maintained and enhance the overall experience. In Japan, gardening is considered a high art form. An oasis of serenity extends from the pagoda, a hill garden which is a Japanese art form and at least is at least a thousand years old. 
Careful arrangements of waterfalls, rocks, flowers, lanterns, and pebbles, footpaths, and rustic bridges form a story. Multicolored koi fish in the pond create living images of Japanese art. Spend some time in the beautiful hill garden where you'll find rocks, flowers, lanterns, pebbles, waters, footpaths, and rustic bridges. Koi fish make a home in the pond garden. On a nice day, take your goodies from the Katsura Grill and sit outside at the tables near the Japanese festive lights and the water. Now a note about the Epcot International Flower and Garden Festival. Across the way from the bright red tori is an incredible display of winning plants from the Florida Bonsai Society. During holidays around the world, there are storytellers featured in each country. In Japan, the Daruma, a humble Daruma doll vendor, makes an appearance throughout the afternoon. Now let's move on and talk about shopping. There's one main shopping area in the Japan Pavilion. It's the Mitsukoshi Department Store. Now this store is unique, special, and truth be told, very un-Disney-like in some ways. Housed inside the replica of the coronation and ceremonial halls of Jap Japan's Imperial Palace, the Shishinden, is the Mitsukoshi Department Store. Mitsukoshi was founded in 1673 as Ichigoya, selling kimonos. Ten years later, in 1683, Ichigoya took a new approach to marketing. Instead of selling by going door-to-door, -door, they set up a store where buyers could purchase goods on the spot with cash. The owner also founded the Mitsui Group, and so the store later became Mitsukoshi, and that means that it's the oldest and largest department store in the world. Now, Mitsukoshi has five stores in Japan, four of them in Tokyo. They also have about a dozen stores that are licensed throughout Asia, but not owned by Mitsukoshi. But the one in Epcot is owned and operated by the department store chain itself. The cast members who work there are all Japanese and work for Mitsukoshi, as vendors at Disney. And the items you find there are more or less the kinds of things you might find in the Mitsukoshi store in Tokyo, albeit with a slightly American leaning. The Mitsukoshi organization is striven to impart the spirit of hospitality and sincerity in every aspect of business. Today, they're a leading department store in Japan with an impeccable reputation. Now, I've been to several of the shops in Tokyo, and with the exception of them being multi-story buildings that sell literally everything, this is a very close approximation that you would find on a single floor. It's remarkable how they've captured the essence of the store with the outpost in Florida. As one writer put it, with 10,000 square feet of retail space in the Mitsukoshi department store, the shoppers had plenty of souvenirs to choose from and lots to see. If you've never taken the time to browse here, make a point to do so on your next trip. There are wonderful displays of items from Japan, including dolls, fine porcelains, kimonos, Japanese handcrafts, elegant jewelry, snacks, kitchenware, cookbooks, kids' toys, and so much more. You could say it's a sprawling mecca of all things Japanese, running the, almost the entire length of the pavilion. This is not your average theme park gift shop. Rather, it's a comprehensive goliath of a store, selling everything from beloved Japanese toys and snacks to traditional garment accessories to beautiful kitchenware to stunning Mikimoto pearls and everything you can imagine in between. And you can't leave without the, seeing the kimono boutique, showcasing amazingly beautiful kimonos and accessories, and this, of course, pays homage to the origins of the Mitsukoshi brand. It's surprising how much there is in this store. Sometimes it can be a learning experience. There are a number of signs that have been placed around the store, providing you with the history of some of the goods they offer. In addition, the cast members are more than happy to chat with you and share stories about their country, or answer any questions you might have about the merchandise. Now, the store is divided up into different areas, and some of the areas you'll find are related to Hello Kitty, anime, such as Pokemon, books, chopsticks, small lanterns, fans, incense, tea, wind chimes, uh, calligraphy brushes, you name it, you'll probably find it there. Now, there's also a section dedicated to bonsai, the art of growing miniature trees in small containers, as well as tools and books about bonsai. 
there's a section of Maneke Neko, which literally translates to beckoning cat. However, this feline is called welcoming cat, lucky cat, cat swipe, money cat, or fortune cat as well. The people of Japan love to display these felines as mascots. They're often placed in entrances to houses or store windows. Maneki Niko uh, dates back 500 years, but its exact origin is unknown. One legend tells of a woman and her beloved pet cat. One day she, uh, she invited a swordsman friend of hers over for tea. While enjoying their brew, the cat suddenly became frantic and started clawing at the woman's kimono. Believing the cat had gone mad and was attacking his friend, the swordsman severed the cat's head, which flew through the air and lodged its teeth into the highly poisonous steak peering down from the rafters. The woman was distraught over the loss of her pet and would not eat or sleep. In an effort to make amends, the swordsman went to the best woodcarver and had him make a replica of the woman's cat with its paw raised in greeting. When the swordsman gave the carving to his friend, she was overjoyed and put the grief behind her and began to enjoy life once again. You'll find different colored cats that will bring you different bits of fortune. For example, the white cat will bring you good luck and happiness, while the orange cat will protect you during your travels. Lists explaining all ten colors can be found near the cat display. Now, of course, what department store worth its salt doesn't have a jewelry section? You can, of course, find a jewelry section in Mitsukoshi. And you might actually classify this as more of a show or an experience than simply just retail. A store within a store specializes in Mikimoto pearls. In addition to the preset items that you can buy, you can do something called pick a pearl. Large tanks of oysters are set near the counter, and for under $20 you can pick an oyster, and they'll open it for you, and you, you get whatever pearl is inside. Now, there are varying colors and sizes, but it's a really fun experience, and here's what it sounds like. And if that's not enough, there's also a large food section where you can pick up snacks and candy of various kinds. Some are truly exotic and some are fun. Some you have to try and figure out what it is, but 
you know, they all have one thing in common. They all pretty much fall into the realm of delicious. My personal favorites include Pocky. It's a sweet corn stick dipped in chocolate. And Pretz. It's a savory version of the corn stick. The various rice crackers are always a winner. And I also like some of the little packs of things like fried shrimp. Those are kind of fun and they're different and they're unique. But no matter what, it's fun to try some of these things and you should really just check them out when you're there. There's also some unusual drinks to try. I like Ramune, which is sort of a carbonated fruity drink. The really fun part of this is the bottle though. There's a marble that seals it and you pop the marble down into the bottle to open it. I have one of these bottles at home and I kind of keep it out on my shelf as a display because it's a really unique thing and it's kind of fun. And I got mine in Japan, so I'm just saying. Finally, as if that wasn't enough, there's also a sake tasting bar located in the back of the shop. In this area, you can sample sake and purchase your favorites along with a sake serving set. Now, more on that in a minute. Let's move on and talk about the other things you can do and see in Japan. Of course, there's a Kidcot station where you can get your Epcot World Passport stamped or work on Coloring Agent P. But more than that, it's a chance to interact with someone Japanese who will be happy to tell your kids about the culture and where they come from. The station is located uh, in the back of the Mitsukoshi store, all the way back where you would have entered the uh, castle. If you follow the pathway over the moat, you have a door to your right, and that's the back side of the Mitsukoshi store. In front of you is the Bijutsu Kan. This is sort of a museum of things that are distinctly Japanese. It's an art gallery dedicated to sharing a collection of Japanese arts. In the past, they've done anime, tin toys, arts, kimonos, and other cultural things. The current exhibit is spirit beasts from ancient stories to anime stars. Explore the myths and legends that gave rise to the modern anime culture. As far as entertainment, one of my personal favorite things to do is watch Miyuki, the candy lady. One of the unique offerings at the pavilion is, was a live demonstration by Miyuki. The art of candy making goes back over 250 years in Japan with artists creating animals or flowers from very hot, soft dough that hardens when it cools. Flamingos, dragons, flowers, scorpions, and more came to life right before your eyes. She was one of the few female artists to have this craft, and she'd been at it at Epcot since 1996. She finally retired in 2013, and I was sad to see her go because it was really something unique. Now, another always fun thing to do is to see the Matsurisa. They perform on the lowest level of the pagoda several times a day. Matsurisa should be on your must-see list when you visit Epcot. You'll see the dynamic musicians playing hypnotically impressive rhythms that ring out across the World Showcase on drums ranging in size from a small to impossibly huge. This is a really sh fun, unique, and exciting show. And it's entertaining for young and old, whether you're seeing it for the first time or the 15th time. It's a great storytelling element that comes along with the show as well. Taiko have a mythological origin in Japanese folklore, but historical records suggest that Taiko were introduced to Japan through Korean and Chinese cultural influences as early as the 6th century. Taiko performance consists of many components in technical rhythm, form, stick, grip, clothing, and particular instrumentation. Ensembles typically use different types of barrel-shaped nagado daiko, as well as shime daiko. Many groups accompany the drums with vocals, strings, and woodwind instruments. The Nihon Shoki, the second oldest book of Japanese classical history, contains a mythological story describing the origin of Taiko. The myth tells of Amaterasu, yes, the same one who was in the story about the Tories I talked about earlier, who had sealed herself inside a cave in anger and was beckoned out by the elder goddess Ame no Uzume when others had failed. Ame no Uzume accomplished this by emptying out a barrel of sake and dancing furiously on top of it. Historians regard her performance as the mythological creation of Taiko music. In feudal Japan, taikos were often used to motivate troops, call out orders or announcements, and set a marching pace. Estimates of the number of taiko groups in Japan vary anywhere from 800 to 5,000. 
active in Japan, but you get the sense that it's a very popular thing in that case. At times, you'll also see outdoor acting performances in various Japanese styles in the courtyard, and soon they're adding a streetmosphere team to come to the、uh, Japan Pavilion and start acting. Although some pavilions in Epcot have ties to specific Disney characters, Japan has none, so you will not find a character meeting spot in Japan. Now let's talk about drinking around the world. Some people enjoy sampling adult beverages from the countries around the world showcase. The sake bar is one location to sample. There are a variety of sakes to choose from. You're, if you're not familiar with sake, don't worry. There are descriptions for each one on the menu, so feel free to look them over and take your pick. You can also enjoy a sip or a sampler, getting an education in rice wine along the way. And you can purchase a bottle or for later consumption. Rice wine can be sampled for prices ranging from about $5 to $10, and if you like what you sample, a large assortment of sake is available nearby. You can also pur- purchase traditional sake drinking cups and have your cup personalized with your name printed in Japanese characters. The sake bar also offers a selection of plum wines, which are sweeter and milder than sake. If you're feeling adventurous, order the plum wine that comes with an actual plum in it. From what I gather, the cast members that work behind the bar are without fail some of the kindest, friendliest, sweetest, and most cheerful employees you'll find anywhere in Disney World, and probably anywhere on the planet. It's they, not the atmosphere, the location, or even the drinks themselves, who make the sake bar so much fun. It's also a great place to make friends with other guests. There's also the Kabuki Cafe. This quick service spot sells soft drinks, Japanese beer, sake, and plum wine, so you can sample on the go as well. Now, as far as restaurants, over the Mitsukoshi department store are the Mitsukoshi restaurants, which offer two unique dining experiences. You get up to them using the grand staircase on the outside in the main courtyard, or there's elevators around the front part facing the lagoon, so you can take them up to the second floor if you can't manage the stairs. At Tepan Ido, guests are seated at an eight table with a coriander counter around a large grill where chefs chop, prepare, and cook your meal with such skill and speed it provides a means of entertainment to enhance your dining experience. If there are less than eight people in your party, be prepared to sit with other guests. It's all about the fun, so don't be shy. But if you are, there's a surefire way to get over it. Just turn to the person sitting next to you and say, Hey, where are you visiting from? It's sure to get a conversation started with another guest who's probably just as shy as you are. Entrees at Tepan Ido include chicken, beef, and seafood, cooked alone or in combinations with other vegetables, served with tasty sauces, steamed rice, and salad. Sushi appetizers are also available. The chefs at Tepan Ido work with flashing knives and they demonstrate tableside cooking. The preparation is a feast in itself. Tepan means iron plate, and yaki means grilled, broiled, or pan fried. Here, a chef entertainingly prepares your meal at the table while you watch. The concept originated in 1945 as a way of introducing Western style foods to the Japanese. However, the concept quickly became more popular with foreign visitors to Japan than with the Japanese themselves. So, as time progressed, the chef's performances became more elaborate and amusing to continue attracting tourists. This tradition is continued in Tepan Ido. The chefs here all have their sense of humor and、uh, good dexterity. They can handle a knife, toss a spatula, and create an onion volcano while keeping up amusing banter. Tokyo Dining is the other restaurant, and it's a table service restaurant. It features an expansive sushi bar and a trio of female sushi chefs. The restaurant showcases traditional cuisine and, and traditional ingredients of Japan, with an emphasis on sushi and innovative presentation. Beautiful lacquered screens and traditional decorated alcoves, tokonoma, Set a mood for each room. Mitsukoshi Tokyo Dining offers traditional Japanese cuisine and ingredients with modern, innovative presentations. The decor of the restaurant is elegantly done in a modern setting. 
From the moment you walk in and you're greeted by a sincere Japanese cast members, you'll find that their constant bowing adds to the authenticity of your overall experience. Bowing is a very important custom in Japan, and it's impolite not to return a bow when someone bows to you. Japanese greet each other by bowing instead of handshaking. The menu combines traditional food culture dating back to the Edo period with the spirit of modern Tokyo. Entrees include sushi and sashimi, steak, chicken, and shrimp, as well as beverages such as hot sake, green tea, and kirin beer. If you've never had sushi before, this is the place to try it. If you're a fan of sushi, craving some new Japanese food, or want a place to dine with a great view of illuminations, Tokyo Dining has you covered. The service food and atmosphere are all great. The Tokyo Dining and Teponido restaurants open each day at noon. A few minutes before this time, many of the chefs and servers enter the lobby and conduct a small ceremony welcoming you to the restaurant and to the department store downstairs. This is not a tradition at all restaurants in Japan, but it is something that's performed at several of the better department stores, including Mitsukoshi. Tokyo Dining combines elegance and comfort into one package. The restaurant is well-ordered, with somewhat austere furniture, perfectly folded napkins, yet there is a sense of well-being here. It exudes warmth and friendliness. The tables, situated by the windows, offered unparalleled views of the World Showcase Promenade during the day and illuminations in the evening, and you couldn't ask for a more charming servers who provide the best in Japanese hospitality. The third dining location is among the gardens and atop the nearby hill. It's called Katsura Grill. At one point, it was called the Yakitori House. This structure was designed to resemble a tea house that might have been found in the Katsura Imperial Village in Kyoto. It's a small version of Shokente in the Kyoto Imperial Villa Gardens. This rustic building with its thatched roof serves as a restaurant, offering Japanese cuisine and refreshments. You will find dishes such as sushi, Japanese curry, teriyaki, edamame, udon noodles, and panko breaded chicken, otherwise known as katsu, and okonomiyaki, a Japanese pizza of sorts, with a vegetable and sauce topping a pancake. Japanese beers, wines, and sake can also be ordered here. The Katsura Imperial Villa is considered one of Japan's most important cultural treasures, yet it's probably less known to foreign tourists than any other sites in the country. Tour companies often overlook this wonderful, their wonderful gardens and architecture found here in favor of nearby Kyoto Imperial Palace. In Japan, a tea house, which is usually near a garden, is traditionally used for performing the tea ceremony. The tea ceremony is a very special event in Japanese culture and considered an art form. Participating in a tea ceremony is deemed to be more of an experience than an event. The presenter of the ceremony may take days to make sure everything is prepared and presented perfectly. This includes the tea, the food, and the exact placement of the utensils to be used. The actual presentation is a carefully choreographed ritual that has evolved over the centuries. The invited guests will give themselves totally to the here and now and savor every moment. Although Katsura Grill was designed to resemble a tea house, the actual use is a little more pedestrian. Here it's used to serve tourists a semi-authentic Japanese meal. The inside of the restaurant is bright and cheery and offers beautiful views of the surrounding gardens. Outdoor seating is also available in a lovely garden setting. Overhead Japanese lanterns swing in the breeze and a nearby waterfall creates a charming backdrop in which to enjoy your meal. Another detail of the Katsura Imperial Villa has been captured by the Disney replica, a fence. At the Imperial Villa, a bamboo fence surrounds most of the property. At Katsura Grill, a similar fence separates the onstage area from backstage. And finally, in terms of dining, the Kabuki Cafe also serves green tea, edamame, and kakigori. Kakigori is a shaved ice that's topped with flavored syrup and condensed milk. Now you might think snow cone when you hear this, but you'd be way off base. The ice used in the kakigori is a smoother consistency and more akin to fresh snow than to ice, 
and the flavors tend to be more fruity and less syrupy. So kakigori is a summertime treat in Japan that's sold virtually everywhere. And now we move on to what nearly was. Now certainly there's a lot to see and do in Japan, but what most people don't know is that there's a completed show building that's behind the Bijitsu Khan, or behind the castle walls if you want to look at it that way. There was a plan to open an attraction called Winds of Change, or Meet the World, in that space. Now they did open a version of Meet the World in Tokyo Disneyland that closely resembled what they were planning on putting at Epcot, and it closed in the early 2000s. The plan was essentially to duplicate it in English, because it was in Japanese at Tokyo Disneyland, and have a copy of it running in the United States. The show was, uh, probably the right word is unusual, and it was also a fairly dated show. There are videos of it on YouTube that you can watch and you get a sense of how it looks and you kind of go, eh, I'm not really sure about this. The show provided an account of Japan's history and combined film, music, and audio animatronics to depict key moments from several thousands of years worth of Japan's folklore and fact. It was set on a revolving stage, kind of like the Carousel of Progress, and Meet the World had something else in common with the nostalgic look at American history. It featured a theme song written by the Sherman Brothers. Only the lyrics here were written entirely in Japanese. So let's listen to a couple of moments of it so you get a sense of what it sounded like. Meet the World was a four-act show like the Carousel of Progress. However, the arrangement of the seating area and the stages was reversed. For Meet the World, the audience would sit in the middle of the building on a rotating turntable and face outwards toward the stationary stages. This is just the opposite of Carousel of Progress, which has the audience sitting on the outside looking in. Although the seating area would be smaller for Meet the World, the stages would be larger, and the reversed arrangement adding more flexibility for the presentations. Meet the World would also incorporate the future Carousel of Progress did not have, a movie screen on the back wall of each theater. This would be a presentation akin to the American Adventure, where both a movie and audio animatronics features could be employed simultaneously. Meet the World presented a history of Japan in four acts. Act 1 opened in current day Japan, with two children from Yokohama discussing their country's past. 
they would soon be joined by a magical talking crane that would transport them back in time and allow them to see for themselves the colorful history of their nation. As the audience rotated through the various acts, the island nation's volcanic beginnings were discussed along with trading with other nations, isolationism, and reopening of the country, and their promising future. Meet the World in Tokyo had fans and detractors, and would it have worked here? Who knows? Would it have survived? I can't say. So what happened, and why didn't it actually open here? Over the years, we've heard a lot of reasons for not opening it, from money to other plans for the space to lack of sponsorship. But surely one of the primary reasons was the way that Japan's role prior to World War II was depicted in the uh, presentation. It really wasn't addressed at all. One scene had a young girl say, it's awfully dark, and the crane responds, yes, it was dark, but that's all over now. So it kind of glosses over the history of World War II. The story goes that Disney executives were fearful that glossing over the negative time in Japan's history would offend some guests, especially those who fought in World War II. So as not to offend them, they basically ceased production on it and never put the show on in the United States. World showcases always needed more rides and attractions, and to think that Disney once had some grand plans for all of it that they simply never realized is kind of disappointing, but the future is filled with promise and possibility, so there's a lesson we learned from Epcot that you never know what the promise of the future holds. So perhaps there's still some hope, and perhaps something else will be used in that Japan Pavilion or other spaces around the World Showcase. As long as everything isn't princesses, I think we'll be okay. Now, over the years between when when Epcot opened and today, other attractions have been discussed to be put into Japan's Pavilion and the vacant show building. One called for a roller coaster to race through Mount Fuji in the same manner that the Matterhorn bobsleds go through Disneyland. At one point, they even discussed Godzilla, or maybe a large lizard, attacking guests in their cars. But there's an interesting twist of fate that happened here. The Fuji Film Company of Japan approached Disney about sponsoring the attraction. But Kodak, the American film company, who was a huge competitor of Fuji, objected to having a competitor sponsor a major attraction at Epcot. So Disney, in their own best interest, decided not to go ahead with the relationship with Fuji. So that idea died. But many of the Matterhorn-derived design elements survived and were ultimately incorporated into Expedition Everest at Disney's Animal Kingdom. Another proposed attraction was a walkthrough version of Circle Vision, in which guests would board and walk through a Shinkansen, that's the bullet train, and look through windows, actually film screens, that showcased Japan's changing landscapes. The train would have shaken and moved like a train traveling through the countryside, and guests would have enjoyed an experience of of riding on the Shinkansen. Now, of course, that never came to pass either, but I think that's a really interesting idea that may still have some merit, and you never know, may come back one day. And that's my look at the Japan Pavilion. I hope you've enjoyed it, and remember, if we can dream it, we really can do it. Thank you for tuning in to the Disney View Podcast. We hope you had a pleasant stay and arrive home safely. Please remain seated until your ride vehicle stops completely. Then, gather your personal belongings and step out onto the moving platform. And yes, I know it went by so quickly, but don't worry. One of the nice things about traveling on this podcast is that the journey is just beginning. Show notes are available on DisneyWorldPodcast.net. While there, please check out some of our affiliates. You'll also find links to Dave's iPhone and iPad apps. There's an app for pin trading one for finding hidden Mickeys, 
and an app for finding and tracking pressed pennies around the Walt Disney World Resort. And you never know just what Dave is working on next. If you have questions, feel free to drop Dave an email at davesdisneyview at gmail.com. Original music you're hearing in this podcast is Oslo Doom by Gilberto Gil. Of course, this is a fan podcast and in no way affiliated with the Walt Disney Company. 